0: talk about sacrifice. We had a very lively discussion in Midrash last week, and since we're at the beginning of Leviticus, the whole thing has to do with sacrifice. What I want to talk to you about is what sacrifices mean, both from a biblical perspective and from a Christian perspective. I can remember years and years and years and years and years years ago when uh, we were still in the Episcopal Church, and we had started studying Torah. And my wife had uh, an exercise group with the pastor's wife and some other women in the church. And when she found out that we were studying the Torah, you get this sort of, well, what's your favorite part of Leviticus? And It's interesting because I understand that in the yeshivas, when they start training young boys, they start with Leviticus. Leviticus tells us how God wants to be related to, what the relationship between him and us should look like. And one of the misconceptions of Christians is that it's done away with. In other words, sacrifices have been replaced by the sacrifice of Yeshua. And what I'm going to suggest to you, I'm not going to suggest, I'm going to tell you, it's not true. The other thing is, Sacrifice is a major deal in the Bible. We just read, what, six chapters on the technique, but it goes throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis all the way to the end. The way I would describe it, and this was an original with me, it's like somebody who was born blind, and you can explain to them about color. He can get a degree in physics and know all about color, because, you know, you can do that while you're blind but he really doesn't understand color because he's never seen it. And in Judaism, their perspective is we can study about sacrifice, we can read about it, we can read all that stuff, but we really don't understand it because we haven't done it. The way they see it is we are sort of crippled because there's a major part of our relationship with God that we can't do anymore because there's no temple. And one of the things, of course, you all know is God explicitly says, the only place you're going to do sacrifices in my temple. So when the temple's gone, they can't do it. And, and they've replaced it with prayer and charity and so forth. But they recognize that there's something missing. So I'm going to start off and explain what's going on with the sacrifices. And I got this approach from a rabbi foreman, who was very good. And There are basically three offerings. There's a sin offering, a peace offering, and a burnt offering. Now, there's variations on the peace offering and so forth, but basically there's three categories. And what he talks about it is who eats it, what's it called, and when was it used? In other words, where does it come from? Now, one of the things that you should notice, or if you don't notice, I'll tell you now, is God defines sacrifice from him outward. So the first one in the Bible is the Ola, which is an elevation offering or a burnt offering. Then you go to a peace offering, and then finally you get to a sin offering. So it starts with God, who is pure, and gets out to us, who are sinful. Notice the sequence there. Well, I'm going to turn it around, and we're going to talk about it in the opposite order, because that's how we approach God. First we have to deal with sin, and then we move forward. So from our perspective then, let's start with the sin offering. And the Hebrew word for there is hahtat, and it is eaten by the priest. Now, in Michael's reading, you didn't get that because that law is next week's reading. So I will take you ahead a little bit in Leviticus 6.24. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Now there's some of them that aren't eaten, so when the priest himself is the one who has sinned, it doesn't get eaten. It goes outside and gets burned. But normal sin offering, the priest eats it. Now what's that all about? What Foreman said, which I like very much, is what is the original sin? We ate of the forbidden fruit, right? So the idea here is God put us in the garden, and he says, all of this is yours. Wants you to tend it. You can eat anything you want, but this tree in the center is mine. You don't eat that. Well, it didn't last 20 minutes, and we'd eaten it, Right. So the point is, what we have done is we have violated a boundary. God says, this is mine, it's reserved, it's set apart. We ignored that boundary and we went in and ate something that belongs to God, not to us. So when we do our sin offering, what we do is we give food to God's representative, who is the priest. We ate of the food that belonged to God. So as atonement, what we do is we turn around and we present food back to God, and the priest, who is God's representative, is the one who consumes it. It's all very symbolic. What the sin offering is about is respect. We didn't respect God's instructions in the garden, so what we're doing with a sin offering is we have transgressed somewhere, and we have disrespected God, And so what we're doing is we are coming before him with the idea of restoring respect. So that's the deal with the sin offering. Very straightforward. The next one is the shelemim Hatat, usually just called the shelemim, which means a peace offering. And by the way, the thank offering or Todah is essentially a peace offering. So I'm not going to break those out. We'll just talk about it in terms of the shelemim. There, no sin involved. And it's shared. The one who brings the offering eats of it. The priest eats of it. And then part of it is burned. And by the way, the idea of a shalomim or a todah, a peace or a thank offering, is you've got to bring a crowd with you because there's going to be too much meat for you to eat by yourself. The whole point here is this is a joyful barbecue in the presence of God. It's designed that way. The first place we see it is with Jacob. When Laban comes chasing him as he flees with his family from Haran, they catch up in the Golan, and one of the things they do is they have a zebah, which is a peace meal after they make a covenant. The same thing happens at Sinai one of the things that happens after God makes the covenant with Israel is they sit down and they have a Shalemim Zabim, which is a peace-offering meal. So what we're talking about there is covenant, love, affection. What you're doing then is you are expressing your love for God in fellowship. That's a shalomim or the Todah. The third one is the Olah which is the burnt offering, which is burned up. Who eats that? Nobody. It is entirely consumed. So what that means is you come before God with your offering, and your offering is entirely consumed, which is to symbolize that you are offering yourself entirely to Him. It is an offering of all. You are in awe of God, and you are coming before him, and you are saying, I am all yours. Consume it. So those are the three types of offering, and those are why they exist. Now, there's some Christian misconceptions, and we got into that last week. And I'm going to go into it again because several of you were not here. The first misconception that most Christians, and not every Christian, I'm generalizing broadly here. The first is that the temple sacrifices took away sin. They did not. There was no sacrifice in the temple for intentional sin. As you were listening to Michael Reed, you should have heard over and over again, inadvertent, when he realizes what he has done over and over and over again there is no sacrifice in the temple system that takes away what God would call high handed sin and in fact there are some sins that can't be atoned for murder, adultery there's no sacrifice there for somebody who realized oh I've murdered somebody it just doesn't exist so the first thing is that the temple sacrifices are not for intentional sin The second misconception is the sacrifice that Christ made obviates the need for the temple. Christ did it all. His sacrifice did it all. We don't need any sacrifices anymore. Not correct, and I'll explain that in just a minute. And then the third misconception is that since there is no functioning Levitical priesthood with a temple right now, that Christians have replaced the Levitical priesthood. We're all priests now, and the Levitical priesthood is done away with, and off we go. That's also incorrect. As I'm talking about this, I know we have at least one preterist in the audience. I'm not a preterist, but it'll be okay. For those of you who don't speak ecclesiastical jargon, a preterist is one who believes that the events of Revelation are finished. It all happened in 70 A.D., And Revelation is now historical as opposed to prophetic. I don't agree with that, but it's a respectable position. But understand, as I'm coming at this, I'm coming at it from a non-preterist perspective. So if you're a preterist, just be calm. It'll be okay. So there's four temples in the non-preterist perspective. The first one is Solomon's Temple, which was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonians. The second one is Ezra's temple, and that was after the Babylonian return. And you could say that half is Herod's temple, because what Herod did is major structural renovations to the place. That one got desecrated several times. So it got desecrated by the Greeks under the Maccabees, for example. And of course, it got desecrated by the Romans, especially after they destroyed the place. There will be a third temple. And that temple, the Hebrews or the Jews in Israel are fully prepared to build. They've got all of the vestments for the high priest. They've got a cornerstone cut. They've got everything ready to go. If they can just get up on the temple mount and install it. And when that happens, it's going to be really interesting in the world. Things are going to just get really exciting when that happens, but it will happen. And that is predicted, for example, in the book of Daniel. Preterists would argue with me, but I see that that temple in the book of Daniel is the one that is going to be desecrated by the Antichrist. That one will also be destroyed. Then the fourth temple will be what I call the Millennial Temple. And that will be the temple in which Christ himself is resident and David is the king. And the millennium lasts for a thousand years. And I will give you some scripture on all of that. First off, Isaiah 56, 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So what we're talking about there is a future gathering, a future temple, and the idea there is... Everybody can come who keeps the Sabbath. We talked about that about three weeks ago. Everybody can come and they can sacrifice. So the idea there in the millennial temple with Christ himself in residence, there will be sacrifices. Ezekiel 44, starting in verse 9 and this is talking about the Ezekiel temple, and if you look at the dimensions of that thing, it is very clear that it is not anything that has already been made. I mean, the thing is huge. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went away from me Going astray from me after their idols when the Israel went astray shall bear their punishment. Okay, so we got Levites. Verse 11. They shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the temple and ministering to the people. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice of the people, and they shall stand before the people to minister to them. Millennial temple. We got Levites again. They're going to be slaughtering. Verse 12 because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord God, and they shall bear their punishment. They shall not come near to me to serve me as priests, nor come near any of my holy things and the things that are most holy, but they shall bear their shame and the abominations that they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple, to do all its service and all that is to be done in it. In other words, what they're going to be is holy butchers. Their job is going to be to do the mechanics of the sacrifice, but they are not going to be priests. They are not going to come in to the holy place. They are not going to come into the holy of holies because of the falling away that they did that led to the Babylonian exile. But the thing I want you to understand is in that millennial temple with Christ in residence, there is still going to be sacrifice so the sacrifices have not been done away with furthermore I will gently suggest that if Christ himself is in residence and right next door they're doing sacrifice I don't think he regards that as an insult I figure if he did he'd do something about it so the idea that Christ is there and the sacrifices are going on while he is there indicates that there's not a problem now very quickly i will go through a rift that you've all heard a dozen times there are three orders of priesthood there's the order according to the sons of aaron there is the order according to melchizedek of which there is one member yeshua himself and then there's the order of the priesthood of all believers which is us those three orders of priesthood have three different venues. The book of Hebrews says that Yeshua, who is of the tribe of Judah, is not authorized to sacrifice in the temple because that is reserved for Levites. The only place he's authorized to sacrifice is in the temple in heaven where he brings his own blood, which, by the way, is why he has to be both a priest and a king. He's the king of the earth, but he's also going to bring the blood of the sacrifice, his own, and shed it on the altar up in heaven, so he also must be a priest. Hence, the Melchizedek business. And then, all believers, the only sacrifice we're allowed to bring is the sacrifice of praise. We are also going to be allowed to bring animal sacrifices, but a Levite will have to do that. Not us. In other words, we don't get to go into the temple and sacrifice. A Levite will do that. So... One of the things, as I said, we had three kinds of sacrifices. Only one of those deals with sin, and that is only with inadvertent sin. It doesn't take away the sin of rebellion, for example. The only blood that covers that is the blood of Messiah. His sacrifice covers for all of the willful, intentional sin that all of us commit from time to time. One sacrifice, one place, one purpose. Find something and you stick it in your pocket and then you later realize it belonged to somebody else. Oh, my goodness, I've stolen something. There's a perfectly good Levitical sacrifice to take care of that. And as I am fond to say, because I'm an engineer, the three priesthoods and the three orders of sacrifices and the three venues are orthogonal. They're right angles to each other. They don't conflict at all. Now, last thing I want to talk about is sacrifice is expensive. I will give you a piece of scripture for that. I'm in First Chronicles. It's also in 2 Samuel. I'm in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 23. This is when David has numbered the congregation of Israel. And God has sent a destroying angel through the nation. So David is now going up to the threshing floor of Aruna or Ornan, depending on which book you're reading. Then Ornan said to David, take it and let my lord, the king, do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for a burnt offering and the threshing sledge for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. So the king shows up and he wants to sacrifice. And this farmer up there said, take it. I give you everything. Use it. But King David said to Ornan, no, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours. No offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of the burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into his sheath. So the deal here is this farmer or an knows what's going on. I mean, there's a plague going throughout the land. The king shows up and says, all right, need to do a sacrifice here. And the guy says, yes, take it. I give it to you. David says, no, I will not sacrifice anything that costs me nothing. And one of the meanings of the word sacrifice is to give something up or to deny yourself something. So the idea here, when you come with a sacrifice, is you are giving something up. It should be expensive to you now as we heard Michael reading God doesn't demand a poor person show up with a bull he can't afford it so what God says is you can't afford a bull fine we'll do a sheep can't afford a sheep fine we'll do a bird you can't afford a bird fine bring me a handful of flour but the deal here is You have to bring something of yourself, something of your substance. It has to be something that costs you something in order to have a sacrifice be acceptable before God. Now, one of the things that I will say, I am a meat eater. I am a hunter. And as those of you who have been around here for a long time know that at the feast, what we do is we take some of the men, and especially when we had young men, And we take them out to a farm east of here that raises sheep. We buy however many sheep we want. You can buy one for yourself, but we always buy enough for the congregation. And we teach the young man how to do slaughter. We don't sacrifice, by the way. What we do is we slaughter them and we turn them into dinner. One of the things about ritual slaughter... Has anybody ever been laying down, watching TV, listening to music or whatever and stood up very quickly and gotten lightheaded and fainted? When you slaughter an animal that way, what you do is you sever its juggler. And what happens is the blood pressure drops instantly and the sheep goes unconscious instantly. It's like when you faint. Very, very humane. And that, by the way, is how slaughter is prescribed to be done in the temple. That's how Jews slaughter their meat to this day. Now, I am perfectly happy slaughtering a sheep for supper. How much more, then, should I be happy using the life of a sheep for my spiritual relationship with God? Which is more important, supper or my relationship to God? So the idea of using animals in that way is perfectly okay. Scripture very clearly says you won't be cruel to animals, etc., but it also doesn't say you're a vegetarian. In fact, there are some places where you're commanded to eat. For example, the Passover. You're commanded to eat the Passover. The idea, then, of using animals in worship and drawing close to God... To me, that's more important than using them for supper, which I also do. The other thing about sacrifice and why it involves slaughter is when you stand before the altar and you've put your hand on this lamb, bull, goat, whatever. And you have, in the case of a sin offering now, they're not talking about a meme or a roll, oh, that's a different thing. But if you've sinned, if you've transgressed, you put your hands on that and you confess your sin, and then that animal dies. That's a very powerful emotional image. Wait a minute. This animal dies because of something I did. That's a big deal. So, to wrap up, Understand, sacrifices have not been done away with. They will resume twice. They'll resume when Israel makes a new temple on the Temple Mount, and that will happen. That temple will then be desecrated by the Antichrist and will have a millennial temple built. Sacrifices will resume there. However, in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no temple because the Lord himself is in the New Jerusalem.